The Greenfield filter was a major advance in the prevention of fatal pulmonary emboli. You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Laser Greenfield. Dr. Greenfield is former professor and chairman of the Department of Surgery at the University of Michigan School of Medicine. And since retiring from that role, he served as interim executive vice president for medical affairs and interim CEO of the University of Michigan Health System, as well as a consultant to the FDA and to the Medical Product Surveillance Network and editor-in-chief of Surgery News, as well as the American College of Surgeons web portal. Dr. Greenfield has published hundreds of book chapters and peer-reviewed articles, as well as two major textbooks on surgery. Perhaps, however, he is most well-known for the Greenfield filter. Welcome, Dr. Greenfield. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be with you. Today we are discussing the Greenfield filter. Dr. Greenfield, what is the indication for the Greenfield filter? We established indications for the filter over a period of time, and they evolved over time to include a number of situations where patients either had problems with anticoagulation or subsequently failed anticoagulation and sustained complications indicating that they had no control over the underlying thrombosis. If someone is placing a Greenfield filter... Must they always be anticoagulated? No. Very often, anticoagulation contraindication becomes the indication for a filter. And how do you determine whether a Greenfield filter is doing its job, other than just clinical response to the patient? The way in which you follow these patients will vary. Fortunately, over time, it's become much easier to obtain information about deep-seated veins by the process of ultrasound. And so uh, many of these patients are followed by uh, utilization of venous duplex examinations. What are you really looking for there? You're really looking for evidence that the patient still has an open vena cava, but also whether the patient has any evidence of recurrence of the underlying venous thrombosis. My concern with following these patients has always been to effectively manage the underlying disorder because these patients are not immune from getting recurrences of their venous thrombosis, which, of course, if they can, would require anticoagulation management. Is that what you do when you do have a thrombosis of the IVC? Thrombosis of the IVC is fortunately very rare, but if there is thrombosis, you would prefer that it not progress. And if the filter uh, thrombosis, then it no longer provides the protection. And if thrombus progresses above the level of the filter, then you have another risk situation that may require a second filter. Dr. Greenfield, you are a surgeon and I am a surgeon, and surgeons early on put in the Greenfield filters. Who's doing it now? Interventional radiologists for the most part, and they're primary interest is in the ease with which devices can be inserted. So the demand has been for lower and lower profiles of catheters that uh, would allow placement of these devices. How big does the catheter have to be to get in a Greenfield filter? Currently, the profile of the device is relatively small. The stainless steel and titanium devices can quite readily be inserted percutaneously 
through a large bore catheter. But the size is really not nearly as important to the patient as the long-term outcome from having the device in place. And the focus should really not be on how easy it is to get the device in, but on how safe the device is for all the years that the patient needs protection. Well, how safe is the device? Fortunately, the Greenfield filter has been quite safe over a period of time, and I think the other devices that came along uh, that for the most part were similarly cone-shaped have performed very well as well. And how easy is it to put in? It's very easy. All that it takes is some documentation of the position of the renal veins. Uh, It can be done either by ultrasound at the bedside or it can be done uh, radiographically and uh, the device can be inserted percutaneously from either the jugular or the femoral vein. Is this done under local anesthesia? Yes. Now, should a surgeon be present, or is this really done completely by interventional radiologists? It's currently done completely by interventional radiologists, and it's a very safe procedure. The only problem is the question arises, who's going to follow the patient and take responsibility? But who is going to follow the patient? It's not going to be the radiologist. (laughs) If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is renowned surgeon, professor, teacher, author, and inventor, Dr. Laser Greenfield. Today we are discussing the Greenfield filter. Dr. Greenfield, have you made any modifications to your filter over the years? That's an important question, Mark, because the relationship between the originator of the device and the company is one that really needs to be a comfortable one for many years. The relationship that I had with the company was, I think, quite a remarkable one because as a young faculty member at the University of Oklahoma, I was told that I could not hold a patent, and therefore it was the engineer with whom I worked who patented the device. And when the device was sold, I was able to convince the company that I was particularly interested in in quality control and in continuing to improve the device, as were they. So we had a very symbiotic relationship for more than 25 years as I worked uh, with their bioengineers to continue to refine and improve the device. What were your changes that you wanted to see? most? When the era developed where radiologists were putting the device in percutaneously, it became very clear that we needed to modify the device to allow it to be inserted percutaneously. The first way in which we did that was to change metals uh, from stainless steel to titanium. And that worked quite well, but we had to give up the guide wire. And that led to some of the devices tilting. It turned out that didn't have much of an effect on long-term performance, but I still wasn't happy with that. Uh, So we went back and redesigned the device so we could go back to stainless steel and utilize the guide wire again, and that was a a much better device. Why is there a difference between stainless steel and titanium? There really isn't a difference in long-term performance. There was a difference in the way in which the apex of the device, the cap on it, could be drilled uh, to allow the use of the guide wire. Are there different size Greenfield filters? There are not. Fortunately, the titanium device can be used in a very small vena cava, for example, in the vena cavas of children. 
And early on, we were quite interested in whether having a filter in the vena cava would affect the growth of the vena cava. So we were able to establish in animals that the vena cava would grow in a normal fashion and felt very safe about having titanium filters put in children. And that experience has been favorable. Well, how many Greenfield filters have been put in since you first invented it and produced it? My estimate on that is based only on how many have been distributed, and that is in the hundreds of thousands uh, worldwide. Now, Dr. Greenfield, please excuse me for asking you this question, but are you richer than Bill Gates? (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, In fact, I know that I'm not, uh, and certainly not as a result of the filter. Well, if you could please explain. I'm sure all the physicians listening are thinking, well, this gentleman has a filter named after him, which is the gold standard in treatment of pulmonary emboli, and why aren't you richer than God? As I mentioned, I was told I could not hold the patent. I was, as a young faculty member, told that I could not obtain the patent. So when it was sold, the rights went with it. And what I got instead was a commitment from the company to support the long-term clinical studies of outcomes in these patients. And that really gave me considerable freedom in dealing with the company. And I was very comfortable in criticizing what I thought were any efforts to shortcut or compromise on quality control. Now, I know you're human. Uh, Did you have any bitterness about that decision that was made? No. Ultimately, I did include the company in my portfolio, and as the company prospered, I gained from that, but never from royalties. There were no governmental restrictions in terms of you being involved with the company and receiving uh, benefits from that because you were the inventor? No. What I did, ultimately, was to disconnect myself from that stockholding and establish a charitable remainder trust. I see. Well, I certainly don't mean to get into too personal things, but I'm sure that the audience is very curious, as many surgeons, many other types of physicians have benefited greatly from their inventions of devices like you have, except that you have not been financially remunerated for that. Have you developed any other products or devices that you could tell us about? The only other thing that has my name on it is a device you've never heard of, As I mentioned, I worked early on to try to measure pulmonary surfactant. So we developed what was called the Greenfield Surfactometer. Of course, this preceded the ability to make the biochemical determination of pulmonary surfactant. So the only real use the Greenfield Surfactometer had was its ability to detect minute amounts of detergent in water. So it's it's a public health matter now. Dr. Greenfield, after all of these years and the thousands and thousands of Greenfield filters that have been inserted and been so successful, are you personally pleased at what you've developed, or are there areas where you still want to see improvement? I always want to see improvement, but I'm very pleased that so many patients have benefited, and I still hear from patients. I uh, have followed some of my own patients uh, for many years and watched them have children who grew up, and so that in itself is very rewarding, as it is for all surgeons. Going back to when you put in that first Greenfield filter, how did you explain it to the patient that it's never been done and it is an experimental procedure? I think we were able to convince patients at the time that we had a device that was successful experimentally in protecting them from blood clots. And patients understand that blood clots are bad, so that 
the ability to protect them in a way that didn't require a large abdominal operation was quite attractive to them. Did anyone refuse? Uh, no. Actually, most of the patients that we dealt with were in the Veterans Administration at the time, and there was not, a, for example, a financial concern on their part. They were mainly interested in, in getting better, as most patients are. I want to thank Dr. Laser Greenfield, who has been our guest. We have been discussing the Greenfield Filter. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to check out our website at www.reachmd.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.